Hi, everybody. It's uh, Joe, Leslie, and Gabriel of the Annex. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our uh, episode with uh, Aliza Luft from UCLA. If you haven't heard it, go back and give it a listen. We went super long. She was a super guest, and we had to cut out some material. So here's some bonus material uh, from uh, this past episode of the Annex. We hope you like it. So, you know, one of the wonders I have is why anybody listens to this podcast when there's so many great other podcasts to listen to, especially those on BBC4. Uh, you know, I mean, you should never have uh, the annex in your queue ahead of uh, In Our Time. Um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's great. Uh, anyway, but one of the other ones I was listening to, also a new podcast, um, is the uh, Insight Podcast, which is by this um, consumer genetics company. Mm. And um, they were t they were having a conversation on the last episode with uh, somebody who works for another consumer genetics company. And basically the main thrust of the conversation is that consumers, when they give you like these ancestry types based on your DNA, mm. consumers have uh, expectations about them that from the perspective of, uh, you know, the scientists who are creating them are weird expectations. Mm. Like... <laughs> People basically, mm -hmm. so like what the, the ancestry uh, results from your DNA test will tell you, you know, broadly speaking, you have ancestors from this area or even like more to the point, this, um, you know, genetic continent. stream. Yeah, yeah well, it, it's much more specific than continent in most cases, mm. um, you know, but, you know, they can kind of narrow it down. But people sometimes have disappointments about that. The most absurd is people who are like, you know, how come this test didn't show me that I'm Latino? And it's like, well, <laughs> they, you know, it, this test showed me that I am, you know, 50% Southwest European, you know, 10% African ancestry and 40% new world. Mm. But that's wrong because I know I'm Latino. And it's like, well, what the hell do you think Latinos are? <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, even among, uh, it, without those kind of absurd things, like you'll have, there's people have the expectation roughly that it's going to tell them what nation, what territory of a modern nation state did my ancestors live in just before the age of colonization and mass migration? Right, yeah, totally. So, and <laughs> and the interesting thing though is that apparently um, a lot of the population structure that you reflected see reflect in the DNA doesn't tell you about history five hundred years ago. It tells you about history ten thousand years ago mm -hmm. or a thousand years ago. And so one of the examples they talked about was an Austrian. Mm -hmm who was surprised to see that his genetic typing said that he was only about 30% German and about 70% Slav. Mm. And um, he's like, well, that's weird because I'm an Austrian and Austrians are a German culture. Mm. And then uh, they pointed out to him, uh, this guy wasn't interviewed on the, but they were relating conversation they had. Uh, they were relating to, they said to him, well, first of all, look at a map mm. and <laughs> yeah. see that Austria is really a central European country, like central slash Eastern European country. Mm. Uh, and second of all, you know, if you look historically, um, you know, in late antiquity, you had a lot of Slavic tribes, especially the upper classes of those Slavic tribes trying to assimilate into Western culture. Mm. And so they adopted the German language and Christianity, mm. you know, and so but genetically, they're still Slavs. Um, and, and that was the case in Austria. So it was just kind of interesting to think this kind of, uh, you know, you can see the social construction of race happen. Mm. And yeah. um, one of the really interesting things is in this conversation, they kept taught, which I know none of you have heard, uh, you know, <laughs> they, 
they were they kept talking about like how do we present thing present our data in a way to the customer because these are consumer oriented companies that is scientifically accurate but will still be meaningful to the customer and their um, the notions of race that are salient to them mm-hmm. or the notions of ancestry that are salient to them. Uh-huh. So-, so this makes me think of two things. One is um, Aaron Panofsky and Joan Donovan's paper on um, how racists cope with when they find out that their genetic ancestry test says yeah, that they're not I, really I, I, white. That's what I was thinking of too. Right? Go, go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, it made me think of that and you can talk more about that. But the other thing is I was actually teaching my students this past week about um, sort of the historical, political and economic construction of race in the U.S. And one of my favorite things I like to do is to show census data throughout history and how the census categories have changed so much and really reshape our own understandings of who we are and who other people are and how censuses in other countries are really different. Um, And so one thing that's really interesting right now is that there was this huge push to have Middle East and North Africa on the next census, on the 2020 Mm -hmm. census. Um, That ended up not going through for the next census. But what they are going to do is under the category white, they're going to have a sentence where you're supposed to fill out where your background is, what your ethnic white background is. And a lot of white people are super outraged and confused by this, um, saying like, I don't know, like I go back four generations Irish or six generations Egyptian. Like, I, how do I say what my ethnicity is? Or people saying, for example, I'll just say me, my grandfather was born in um, an area of subcarpathian Ruthenia that when he was born, it was called Czechoslovakia, which doesn't exist as a country anymore. During World War II, it became part of Hungary. Now it's firmly situated in Ukraine. He would never in his life say he's Ukrainian. He probably also wouldn't say that he was Czech, though, because he was Jewish and his whole family was killed. So it's like when you're supposed to say what kind of ethnic white are you? Um, I think for a lot of students or a lot of people who think about race as fixed, um, start getting puzzled, which is good. Yeah. And that's another <laughs> so, weird thing too, because yeah. um, with that, 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 I understand the question you're asking that you're talking about is a new one, but there's long been a, a question on the census for ancestry and um, right. at least in the long form of the census. And in that question, if you fill out Jewish or Ashkenazi or Sephardim or anything like that, they recode it as not elsewhere classified, mm. which is kind right. of weird. Cause it, and I guess it's like an excess of zeal for the establishment clause. But, you know, if you put, right. you know, Croatian, they don't, you know, realistically <laughs> the difference between, uh, the, well, actually there's probably more uh, raw genetic difference between a Jew and an Ashkenazi Jew and a Russian than there is between a Serb and a Croatian. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. you know, they, they consider one to be a religious category. And so they don't um, allow it on the census because they consider that some type of weird establishment clause violation. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that I have with these things are, you know, it's like, it's, I have so many problems with these things. So, you know, like for example, like, you know, whatever, like we're, in the beginning, in the beginning of the semester, in my race class, and you know you and you know you, students do the introductions and why you're taking the class, and someone will say, "Well, it's because I'm like a quarter this <laughs> and like half that and a third this," and you're like, "How, like how how did you like how did you do that math, right? How did you mm-hmm. do that math?" And it's the same. I think it's almost as ridiculous 
with these ancestry things, right? It's like, because number one, first you have to trace, you have to trace the pure, right? Like, like where's right. the pure, like central right. European, right? How do you establish yeah. that purity, right? And that 100% mm-hmm. in that ancestor, and right? Central and central European you- is a tough case. They describe that, that it's very hard yeah. to identify a central European cluster. But for, for me, it's like, a hundred percent pure anything like there is no purity right mm-hmm. and so what you do is you have these things you have these cases that you take and you're like okay this will be our pure standard and it's all just, it's all constructed like it's all constructed and i mean i don't know if these if these companies if these companies w- want consumers to not have unrealistic expectations, they should stop marketing unrealistic expectations. I think that's another thing. Well, I don't know too many companies who'd ever be like, well, all right, guys, we're generating unrealistic expectations. Let's just pack it up. <laughs> you know what, re- what interested me, because I saw you tweeted about that, Gabe, is uh, just yeah. how, like, it, it's just so odd how, categories that came about at the formation of nation states like that are only a few hundred years old Mm -hmm. are just like central organizing principles today in society like that you know it's like it's like the legacy of state for the like the formation of the nation state and sort of the rise of nationalism like it's just it's really big in our thinking even though i remember that story about uh, american whites who are like well i'm 12 things like i'm irish german whatnot Mm -hmm. and uh they don't know what to put in on the genetics of jews though i'm married to a Mm -hmm. uh a north african jew and uh i got questions about all of this uh you know the uh, jewish stories of uh ethnic purity and non-intermarriage because like quite (laughs) candidly i look european and she looks uh she looks north african and uh Mm -hmm. you know i i don't think so So my understanding is that there's been a lot of studies of the Ashkenazim and um, (laughs) apparently there was a huge, uh, there there was a big uh, genetic bottleneck after which there was relatively low intermarriage. Um, But if you trace like, who do we look like genetically, not just phenotypically, um, it seems like we actually do have a lot of Levantine ancestry. But uh, also, it, not actually uh, Slavic ancestry, which is or German ancestry, which is what you'd expect based on where yeah. we spent the last thousand years. But um, a lot of Italian ancestry. Hmm. Uh, apparently, um, you had a lot of um, Jewish men leaving the Levant during the Roman era and taking Roman wives. Huh. And, and it's concentrated mm-hmm. on the mitochondrial line, not on the Y line. Although my, I, I myself do probably have uh, a Germanic Y because, well, in fact, I definitely don't have a uh, Levantine Y because my dad was originally a Gentile. Can I ask you a question? Um, This is actually something I've never been able to figure out with these genetic tests, but um, not, I mean, I haven't done one myself, but when other people say that it's been shown that they're Jewish um, or have Ashkenazi genetic ancestry, um, my immediate family comes Mm -hmm. from Eastern Europe, but way before that, they're from Spain. Uh, my family was kicked out during the Inquisition. And so I always wonder, like, okay, well, that's typically how people mm-hmm. who are Sephardic identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, obviously our practices, my family's traditions and practices are mm-hmm. Ashkenazi. Um, we all look white to, 
the common observer would be as white, but simultaneously we all have dark hair and light eyes. And when I meet people who are from the parts of Spain, my family's from, they're like, oh yeah, people look like that over here. Um, how is that? How, how are those kinds of shifts in migration traced through genetic ancestry? I don't ancestry? know the details, but I, I'm pretty sure they'd be able to tell. There was just a paper that came out showing that, um, that these long kind of family rumors that a lot of, uh, you know, new world, um, people, it, you know, Latin Americans are, were conversos. Uh, there seems to be evidence for that, uh-huh. that like, yeah, that if you look cool. for markers of Sephardic ancestry, they're higher among new world hmm. uh, Latin American whites than they are among Iberians. And it really does seem like there was a That's differential, so uh, out migration from Iberia during the colonial era. You know, it's a shame they, it's a shame they got rid of that MENA right. category. I know that in my wife's family, they were having a lot of arguments out of, yeah. over how to identify. Like, uh, I think the my father-in-law said they were Hispanic on the grounds that they were expelled from Spain. And uh, mm-hmm. the mother was like, no, nah, we're white. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my wife uh, tried to adopt an African-American culture on the basis that Morocco is Africa. I was like, I don't think so. But uh, I don't think that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. She's from Israel, so I guess uh, (laughs) the subtleties of it might have escaped her. But uh, that mean a category would be useful to a lot of people. Well, it's really crazy for a lot of reasons. Um, And I think one of them is that like post 9-11, we've seen a clear racialization Mm -hmm. of people from Middle East and North Africa. And um, if you want to track statistics about discrimination or inequality, you need to be able to collect that data. But also when you have an administration that's trying to ban people from some of those countries um, and those countries are officially fall under the category of white right now. um, It's just, it's very, it seems to me that it's, it's very complicated, but it would also be very helpful to have those categories to understand what's happening. Well, in not not in that region, but one region over. You know, there's one of the best examples of how uh, you know the census actively constructs race in that South Asians um, used to be considered white, right. which makes sense linguistically yeah. and genetically. Um, linguistically and genetically, mm-hmm. South Asians have a lot in common with, say, Germans, um, but you know the. Historically, you know, um, and in the way we what's salient to people, uh, you know, they got reclassified in 1977 as Asian. Yeah, well, you know, Japanese were considered white or or could naturalize for a while mm-hmm. until a Supreme Court case made it for impossible real? for them to do that. I had no idea. Not, yeah, this was. Are you talking Clinton or something earlier? Um, earlier than that, uh-huh. and. And so, like, my whole thing is, this is all just made up shit. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And like, whatever. I mean, it's got these these scientific, these genetic underpinnings to it. But it's like, then you put a category to it. Then you put a name to it. I mean, it's, you know, like, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could go on about this for forever because you know this is one of my areas of interest and like Mm -hmm. thinking about and sort of you know investigating how these labels come about how we then go about using them i mean i think it's interesting that you know in the same time that we're having this discussion about mina we're also having this discussion about whether or not hispanic should be an ethnic versus a racial group right Mm -hmm. um and um and yeah, 
like these processes of racialization that um, that for some groups like have been sort of going on for a while, and with others, it's kind of this new thing, and 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 people are just freaking out because they never thought something like that would ever happen to them, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also. I just want to take the opportunity because I was talking about, we were talking about Mina to plug Neda McBoulay's book on the limits of whiteness, which is just this extraordinarily beautiful book about how Iranian Americans navigate these boundaries where in some settings they're classified as non-white and others they're classified as white and sort of dealing with the consequences of that, that constant shifting in identity. Um, and then, to agree with you, Leslie, that like it's so much bullshit because it's it's so um, fabricated. And yet, um, after I said that to my students yesterday, I was like, I just want to be clear though that doesn't mean it's not incredibly profound in its consequences. Oh, for sure. And yeah. I that, um, yeah, I know you agree. Um, but I think that oftentimes, like a sociologist can point to how arbitrary um, and false and weird um, racial classification systems are. Um, and people can think that that's an argument for saying race isn't real. Um, and so, you know, I don't see race, but well, obviously it's yeah, not there, true. This touches on, so, you know, two general issues of social construction, right? Which I, you know, I, I feel like there's a tendency for people to say, oh, it's socially constructed, or like it's just socially constructed or it's bullshit or whatever. Where You know, as if to, so like, let's say that you have a satellite photo of the earth, right? And then, um, and then we're saying like, oh, the, the lines of where one country ends and the next begins are socially constructed. That doesn't mean that there's not actual mountains and rivers and, you know, and the ocean's here right. and the land is here, Borders. right? Even if there is a historical contingent process as to why, you know, um, the uh, the Rio Grande is the U.S.-Mexican border and not, um, I'm drawing a blank on it, but whatever the, the uh, Nueces, whatever the other river is that's, uh, you know, a few miles north that was the original border, you know, why is one river the border and not the other? Um, you know, or why is the border between the United States and Canada, you know, at exactly one parallel for a certain length, but it falls a river at another length. You know, wh- why is that? That's socially constructed. That's arbitrary. That's historical. But it doesn't mean that there's not Great Lakes. There's not the St. Lawrence River, right? You know. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Gay, and Gabriel. Even even if e- even if it was just like arbitrary. No, well, that's the right? other thing I want to agree with you on. Yeah, yeah. So so I feel like there's two excesses. One is to kind of take social construction too seriously and say. It's all just arbitrary lines on a map and ignore that there are actual real mountains and rivers. And then the mm-hmm. other is to not take it seriously enough and say, oh, if it's um, if it's socially constructed, that means it's just fake and we can ignore it. You know, and it's like, well, no, no, no. Actually, taking it seriously means that even if it were, you know, 100% arbitrary or 50% arbitrary or whatever, you still have to take it seriously. It, it's still something that's realistic in its consequences. We're having this conversation about open borders and the person I was having this conversation with said there should be open borders. And while part of me actually, like ideally, I I would agree with that. There's the other part of me that says, well, because of the borders that existed, right, a country like the United States, for example, was able to build up resources, able to do X, Y, and Z. And now this is why other people who want to leave the places that they're leaving, right, for um, 
for more opportunity, for more freedom are coming to a place like the United States. If the United States were to totally open up its borders, my question would be, would, would all of those resources still exist? No. That's right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but I, no, I, but I, so, I understand so that there's a question of would the resources be accumulated? And I think actually the more immediate issue is um, would you have redistribution in the absence mm -hmm. of closure? And, you know, th there's a very realistic argument that it's like you can either have, you know, a bounded community where there's a lot of redistribution or you can have um, an open community where people are allowed to come, but there's no redistribution. And, you know, like the Gulf states or something like that, where half the population are migrants, but they have no rights and definitely no uh, welfare. Yeah. And so all of that just is, I mean, I, I didn't want to get into a conversation about whether we should or shouldn't have open borders, but, you know, regardless of whether or not the borders are based on, you know, some naturally occurring geographic, you know, sort of marker, or whether it is just an arbitrary line that was drawn by cartographers or, you know, in the presence of world leaders, a scramble for Africa. Yeah, it's, exactly, <laughs> right? It's like yeah. it, it's sort of like uh, they're imaginary, they're constructed, but they're real, right? Um, there are real consequences um, to those things having been constructed in the first place. Mm -hmm.